Hi everyone and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fady Shinuda. I am Fady Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fady Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I have a PhD in public health sciences, and I am currently a postdoc in London in the UK. I identify as a fat, disabled, cis man of color. If you don't know me, uh, hopefully you'll get to know me over the course of the next few episodes. So, on today's show, I am joined by Dr. Sona Kazami. Sona, who uses she/her pronoun, is a postdoctoral fellow in the English department, as well as in the Mershon Center for International Security Studies at Ohio State University in Columbus. Sona has a manuscript called "Disabling Relations: Injured Body Minds and Active Witnessing." which is currently under review at uh, New York University Press and should be coming out uh, next year sometime, so look out for it. Sona is also the global section co-editor for RDS, or Review Disability Studies Journal. Um, They're accepting papers for the first time from non-English submissions, so both research papers and non-academic work. There's a link uh, to the CFP attached to the notes. I'm delighted to be speaking with Sona about her work. So I kind of decided to take that upon myself and create a new model for understanding injury. Her life outside of academia. To mystic poetry and Sufi poetry, paint a couple of darvishes on a canvas. And intrigued to find out how she thinks disability can save the world. Okay, hi Sona. Hi Fady. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You are the first person to um, come on from the U.S., even though you're not a U.S. citizen, but you're currently in the U.S. Um, (laughs) How are things going there? Uh, Well, uh, unfortunately, because of this unprecedented time that we are dealing with, uh, with this global pandemic, uh, of course, um, there is a, there is a, a really anxiety and stress in the air, yeah. uh, especially with uncertainty uh, that's going on. Uh, but it's also, I think, a very good opportunity for people to start thinking about um, the, the, the pre-corona and the past-corona world that we live in. Right. Yeah, and the things that we could learn from this situation. Absolutely. So, um, let's get right into the first segment. I call this first segment Inside the Project, the Research, the Work, the Art. And I'd like to ask you, how did you get involved with disability studies, with math studies? How how did you first learn about it? Uh, I think that's a wonderful question. Um, Disability is my passion, uh, and I I fell in love with it when I was six years old, or perhaps five. 
when for the first time I saw a, a disabled child uh, around my age, and um, that that encounter uh, kind of fascinated me, and I've been fascinated with this uh, field since then. Uh, when I moved to Canada from Iran due to forced migration, basically I was pushed out, mm-hmm. uh, or I should say I escaped. Um, I was uh, almost twenty years old, and I already um, I had already gone to uh, an international university, and I had studied three years of pure mathematics. Wow. Yeah, when I got to Canada, I decided to go after my passion and do something with my love for disability. And I went to George Brown College first and I told them and I asked them, do you have anything that, you know, can, you know, a field that involves some sort of work with disabled folks or something around disability? Um, They said they had like child and youth work and other sorts of, you know, community, um, uh, basically, uh, social service degrees, but yeah. that would be irrelevant to math. So they wouldn't accept any of my credits. So I basically Ooh. started from scratch. Um, yeah, I started uh, with a diploma in child and youth work, just like a person out of high school. I started doing that. And then after a year, I transferred my credits to York and I did a degree in psychology, which then uh, was kind of a, a pathway for me to go into a critical disability studies program that was at York University at the time, and that changed my life. What an amazing journey. I mean, <laughs> what an amazing story. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, your, you use the word like escape, and as someone who's also an immigrant and, you know, um, I guess was also forced yes. out of Mm -hmm. Egypt where Mm -hmm. I'm originally from um Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering and I know you you speak very passionately on online and um on the various social media platforms about um Iran and what's happening there I I felt like I should give you some space to kind of talk about um you know what was going on why the need to move why the forced migration absolutely absolutely thank you so much for giving me that opportunity yes I I so much uh, care about what's going on in Iran, uh, besides my passion for the whole world. But um, like you mentioned, when you when we are immigrants and you you know the experience, we are always immigrants. I mean, at yeah. least that's that's for me. I mean, once an immigrant, always an immigrant. Um, uh, I yes, I do passionately care about what's going on in Iran. Um, and in fact, I had to escape because of the living conditions that um, the current theocratic fundamentalist regime has created for us um, and the force veiling and uh, uh, basically living under a um, what I'm what I have come to call cleric fascist uh, regime um, right. kind of pushed us out or something I called gender apartheid um, that is going on there. Uh, well, people in Iran rose up um, for justice and freedom and democracy. Unfortunately, that uh, rise was hijacked by one religious group, and we ended up with this um, situation that um, the world has um, been witnessing for the past 41 years. Um, yes, uh, me and my family, uh, my, my mom, my grandparents, my uncle, we all have kind of escaped um and 
what really is pressing to mention, I think, the also the coronavirus crisis that's going on uh, in Iran with, like, uh, really uh, full force. Um, mm-hmm. And it's and the government is not even declaring, like, a proper quarantine. And they're, in fact, talking about going back to work when it's uh, everyone knows that's absolutely uh, stupid, um, given the circumstances that we haven't even reached the peak yet, according to... Uh, what scientists are telling us. So uh, those are good lessons for us to um, to maybe think about um, how uh, secularism is different from living under a theocracy. Often we take it for granted. Um, we don't understand what it is to live under a theocracy. But yeah. it's important, especially at times like this, when we really need science to tell us what to do, when we stick to um, holy orders, uh, then that uh, creates a problem, like it has created in Iran. Yeah, and and of course, like it, uh, we have to of course make the similar connections in the states themselves. When you know you have the president saying we'll be back by Easter, you have a university called Liberty University, you know, which is essentially an evangelical exactly. university opening up and you know saying the will of God will save us. I'm not Absolutely. denying that you know religion can't play a role in this, of course, but. Um, you know, public health experts are are clearly worried about people going back too early, right? Because it'll just Absolutely. exasperate healthcare. Exactly. Thank you for that, for exactly. bringing like a more kind of global perspective to what's happening. Um, uh, I want to get into your topic, the area of research that you do. Um, can you tell us, um, yeah, what, what topic did you want to talk about today? Uh, absolutely. I'd love to talk about uh, perhaps my uh, my upcoming book, uh, the book project that I'm working on uh, that has to do with my current research. Um, I was born in the middle of Iran-Iraq war, um, and I grew up in a post-war society. And what that means, it might not mean a lot to a lot of uh, folks who haven't lived in a, uh, in situations like that. So what that means basically is that you have a lot of war veterans around you. And you right. also have a lot of civilians who have become disabled as a result of uh, chemical weapons um, that um, Iraqi state used against us. Uh, civilians, uh, especially Kurdish and Azeri civilians in north uh, west of Iran, um, we actually I think had around one million seventy seven thousand disabled veterans in Iran, and that's a large number. You see it everywhere. And then you are living um, in in a post war post war world that has a story to tell, and one of course is a state story, uh, one is collective memory, and one is the wound. Uh, that I call a uh, gaping wound, this open mouth of the wound that you have to live with. So that kind of um, inspired me to always think about injury. Uh, injury not as an accident, not as something that you're born with, like um, like a congenital condition or something like an accident, but injury, something deliberate, something that happens, something that's organized, socially organized, politically organized and is designed to harm and to design and is de- designed to injure. So that kind of brought me to do my doctoral dissertation on uh, war. Um, and I kind of tried to conceptualize a new model and theory for disability studies 
uh, that uh, understands uh, injury from a quote-unquote third world perspective. That's basically what I have uh, been trying to do because when I entered the field of disability studies, uh, imagine a girl who has grown up in a post-war society with war, vet with war veterans and witnessing so much pain, suddenly coming to a field called disability studies that doesn't talk about those bodies that I have witnessed all my life. Yeah. I came to see a field that's extremely bourgeois, is very white, is very global northern uh, focused, and doesn't really care about where I'm coming from and what my experience has, has been with disability. So I kind of decided to take that upon myself and create a new model for understanding injury from uh, my perspective. I mean, it's so, I mean, it's fascinating, compelling, necessary work, right? In, in understanding you. the, I mean, the yeah, the different relationships that people have with disability. Um, you know, uh, this, I, the, you know, representational identity mm -hmm. politics, um, you know, uh, pride mm -hmm. narratives don't always work. Right. Um, and of exactly. course, that goes outside of disability towards other identities as well. But disability specifically, I want to know why the word injury, because I think a lot of people would associate injury with accident, um, mm -hmm, maybe mm. incorrectly. Um, was mm. were there other kind of versus like example, for, in other words, like harm? So, yeah. Why injury specifically? Well, uh, like uh, Dr. Mary Jean Handy, that, uh, whom you interviewed, in her brilliant words, uh, people whom she interviewed told her that uh, they were broken down. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is really similar to the case that I'm making here because we are both on the path of defetishizing disablement, and which I can explain further what that means. I think that exactly what the activists told uh, Mary Jean is very similar to what I have been hearing from the populations that I have, um, I, I have been working with. This injury is something deliberate, is to mention that this is not an accident. You know, usually when somebody goes to war and comes back, uh, for example, with one leg instead of two legs we call them an injured soldier yeah right or uh, in my other examples i work with um acid attack survivors um mm -hmm. in iran who basically have gone blind because acid was thrown on their face by a mostly rejected women, lover right? mostly women yes yeah. yes uh, perpetrators are men and women but again uh, mostly men and the victims are mostly women, but there are some men victims as well. Or I work with, um, I, I research the lives of people who have lost the limb to punitive amputation for robbery that happens in uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, according to Sharia laws, basically being punished for being poor, becoming disabled as a punishment. Um, and other example is people that I research um, on are people who have gone to prison and have gone, quote unquote, mad under torture and have become someone that their loved ones don't recognize anymore. Uh, the, this I have come to call a wound. I have come to call this an injury, something that uh, is done to another person just because of the unequal power relations that exist in the equation. 
I mean that yeah, I think that example those all those examples are kind of potentially more removed from um our especially North American understandings of disability, right? Um, we don't see acid attacks here. We don't. Uh, war is very much, I think, removed from a lot of us, especially Canadians, right? Injury during war. Um, mm. So it's really interesting that you're bringing this into the fold, these groups of people who may not even constitute themselves disabled, right? May use other terms like injured. Uh, that does, yeah, there isn't room for them in contemporary disability studies. And I feel like you're making up that room. So. Thank yeah, you. I mean, of course. I'm wondering if there is like an underlying theory or an underlying framework that you use to help you think about uh, your work. Um, I think some of what you said reminds me of a little bit of what uh, Puar is trying to do in Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if, you know, you distinguish yourself in some way. Absolutely. Um, I do. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think Jasbir Ford's work is uh, very, very important. And in fact, my work is uh, a little bit different from Jasbir, and I can and I, I can explain why. Um, uh, in in her recent uh, incredible work, The Right to Maim, uh, she has problematized the white and Western nature of disability studies, and rightfully so. Yeah. And basically, it's tendency to naturalize the debilitating conditions under which uh, global Southern people are forced to live and get disabled on a daily basis. And specifically, she works on Palestinian population who live under settler, uh, a settler colonial state. In my example, uh, I totally acknowledge her problematizing uh, West uh, and whiteness uh, as inseparable norms, of course, uh, of disability studies. But I'm afraid that that would dissolve the difference that disability makes in the concept of debility. So what, what I mean by that is that Jasbir uh, argues rightfully that People in Gaza, for example, in open air prison, they live under debilitating conditions. Uh, I totally understand that. But even in that debilitating conditions, similar to which I have lived in post-war post, uh, Iran, there is a still a difference between a, pers a person with two legs and a person with one leg. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm afraid that the concept of disability can get dissolved into the concept of debility. And that's what uh, worries me about this uh, concept of debility. Uh, other than that, uh, what I problematize is also state violence in my work, just like Poir does. But in my case, I am not questioning an occupier. I'm questioning the theocratic fundamentalist regime that... Um, is running the country uh, under corruption and under brutality and atrocities. So in that case, my work is a little bit different from what Puar does. And I, I think we need to go beyond Palestine. Palestine is really important, but the whole global south is not just Palestine. We need to also think about other contexts such as so, the ones that I'm talking about. 
So I'll just say, first of all, thank you for explaining Puar, um, not just to the audience, but to me also. Um, oh. <laughs> it's, it's very helpful. <laughs> but also, I think that you, you like the the distinction that you're making is so significant. Like it's it's like this idea that d- disability might be swallowed up, right, by mm-hmm. debility, mm-hmm. that it'll lose its differentness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the embodied experience that comes with that, right? The different relations that a disabled person has with other bodies, uh, humans, non-humans, right? Um, exactly. That, that someone who is not disabled but maybe experiencing disability will, of course, have different relationships. Is there someone that you do lean on, a theory or a practice or a set of scholars that uh, you do engage with in your work? Yes, yes, uh, that's a very good question. First of all, uh, I I um, uh, engage with Marx a lot. Uh, I I consider myself a, a Marxist, a feminist, and anti theocracy. Uh, and I think that's a that's a very important distinction I need to make because a lot of people on the left have kind of. Um, turned away from uh, looking at what theocracy can do because they are afraid of being politically incorrect. Um, So that is my struggle in my own work to make them see what is actually going on under a theocratic state. Um, Yeah, so I use um, uh, Marx, especially because of uh, his uh, theory of political economy, and also ideology and abstraction alienation. I'm really interested in those concepts. I use dialectical historical materialism in my own work that I call DHM in short form, which is a basis for the model that I created for disability scholars to use. I called it transnational model of disability or um, TMD, which is a theory based on dialectical historical materialism. And I can explain that further uh, if it comes up. In this uh, work, I, of course, stand on the shoulders of giants in the field. Uh, my dear friend and external examiner of my dissertation, Dr. Nirmala Aravellas, and um, my dear, beloved mentor of the past decade, uh, Dr. Rachel da Silvira Gorman, uh, who has really guided my thinking uh, around disability and injury um, for, for many, many years. Um, and, of course, my dear uh, uh, Mary Jean Handy, who has introduced the concept of red disability studies to us. Uh, my mentors here, Dr. Amy Schumann and Dr. Margaret Price, have also shaped my thinking in profound ways, both in theory and praxis. I have uh, not only learned from them how to basically be a, be a good scholar, perhaps, but also how to be a good mentor and how much care um, that they have given me. I have learned also that to give my students. So I think that's also something that I needed to acknowledge that's that's wonderful. Those are giants, um, and I'm so glad that I know some of them. So that's really good. <laughs> um, how do you do this work? 
Are you interviewing people? Are you looking at policy documents? What is your methodology? Uh, in my work, my the methodology that I use, uh, because I organize with a lot of these populations that I mentioned myself in person, for example, I organize with prison survivors uh, who have gone through unimaginable torture in the 80s under the Islamic Republic in Iran. A lot of them live in the diaspora. They are part of what they call justice-seeking movement for the massacre of political prisoners that the regime did in 1988, where it killed nearly 5,000 political prisoners who were uh, who had already served their their sentence. Just decided to try them again and just execute them. Uh, for that, justice-seeking movement has uh, been established. And uh, many of the members are prison survivors or their loved ones died in prison. I have been organizing with them as a, as a therapist, as a political ally, and as a researcher. Um, that is my relationship to that population. The other population, acid survivors, uh, I also organize with them in their justice-seeking movement. Um, I, I connect them to um, doctors for surgeries for uh, dental work, because a lot of these people uh, live in absolute poverty uh, because the state doesn't care about them and because after they, for example, lost their sight, one of them was a hairdresser, she lost both eyes and now she cannot do what she used to do and she cannot live with like a very little money. So basically I've been trying to connect these people to uh, doctors who would be willing to do uh, their surgeries pro bono. Um, and I have, again, connected them to other disability activists in the UK who would, for example, provide, provide housing if one of them would go to the UK for a surgery. Um, that is the kind of work that I do um, in relation to um, this population. And for the other ones, my relationship, uh, for example, punitive limb amputation or war veterans is simply archival research where I just uh, research uh, their living conditions. Um, I, I do digital studies where I just read their comments on social media or just connect to their stories in different platforms and I try to uh, bring them to light. I mean, this sounds like such uh, meticulous work. Um, serious, um, clearly, it's activism as well. Um, I look forward to reading the book. I look forward to teaching your model of disability. Uh, I think it's going to make um, a significant contribution. I can't wait for it. Again, it's called Disabling Relations, Injured Body Minds, and Active Witnessing. At least that is the current title. Um, yes. Uh, it might change, but it, it most likely will stay the same. Yeah, the book is going to have uh, five chapters, uh, or basically I should say maybe six, uh, including the active witnessing part that I will reflect on at the end. I call it active revolutionary knowledge and praxis, where I actually talk about what it is to be an active witness as opposed to um, a witness that's just sitting there um, and just watching what's happening, but actually acting upon your knowledge and making a difference in the lives of people you study. Yeah. Um, that would be the concluding part. But at the beginning, the first chapter, uh, I have called, I've called it Ripping the Wound, where I actually talk about my model. Then I talk about Iran-Iraq war injury, which I've come to call gaping wounds. Then I talk about uh, going mad under torture uh, and state violence, which I have called to come rotten wounds. 
uh, and I do a comparative study between what has gone in Iran and uh, what has gone in Auschwitz under Nazi fascism. And then I come to Iranian Arab amputees convicted of robbery, which I've come to call bleeding wounds. And my last chapter, which is on patriarchal violence in the case of acid attack, I have come to call burning wounds. So as wow. you see, I, I have, uh, yeah, I've come to kind of organize around the concept of wound yeah. and what it means to um, actually have this open wound that you have to deal with. I think that kind of changes the ways in which we approach disability uh, in, in the global north uh, as well. Again, can't wait for it to come out and um, to be able to kind of uh, see what you came up with, see what you've witnessed, how you've approached it, and to learn from you. Um, Thank you so much. I, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to it. Um, and in some ways, I think you can potentially write a seventh chapter, though I won't push you, about COVID and, you know, what... You could write the virus wound. I can imagine uh, what's going to happen to yeah. Iran during this time. I think that's a fantastic suggestion. Uh, <laughs> I, I totally agree. Uh, it's funny you said that because you know how disability community like have been saying since this COVID-19 started. They've been saying, oh, we, we know this shit. We have been living with this for so many years. I mean, yeah. they know the conditions of poverty, of precarity, of having to live on very little money and uh, not being able to access the world because the world is inaccessible. And yeah. a lot of these struggles are something that these people know. Something similar happened to uh, me. I mean, I was reading through these things and I realized that a lot of my comrades in uh, the Iranian movement who are disabled uh, state survivors of violence uh, who were in prison in the 80s, they're saying we lived in our little isolated cells for years, mm. right? I mean, it was interesting to see the connection. They said, oh, exactly. We agree with our disabled you know, comrades. That's exactly what happened to us. We paid a price for just wanting justice and freedom peacefully. We were just dissidents. But then um, we had to be in solitary confinement for months and often years. And this is the this is the this is something that we are familiar with. So I thought that was interesting. These are beautiful connections um, that I hope we'll be able to make. Uh, and when I say beautiful, I mean that there is kind of an intimacy in knowing that other people have you know lived, survived, thrived exactly. after these conditions, right? Um, exactly. So I want to move into segment two, what I call the middle or the liminal space. Um, who is your academic crush? Who can you not stop reading? <laughs> I love that question. Um, uh, actually, my academic crush is um, Dr. Shokufe Saki. I will, I will spell uh, her name. It's S-H-O-K-O-U-F-E-H. Last name is Saki. S-A-K-H-I. Uh, Dr. Saki actually did her PhD in Toronto, actually, at York University in 2014. She's uh, in political science, of course, with flying colors. Uh, Dr. Saki was a political dissident in Iran who was imprisoned for eight years under the Islamic Republic for just being a peaceful dissident. She got arrested uh, around the age of 18 and remained in prison until she was 26 while uh, her parents looked after her one-year-old 
son. Wow. Uh, yes, she was held in uh, coffin-like conditions for eight and a half months in Ghazal Hassar prison. Uh, but she refused to collaborate with the regime. She refused to harm her comrades. And that's why they held her in that coffin condition, uh, coffin-like conditions for nine months. She came out eventually and left Iran with her son. She now lives in Canada and she is a wonderful scholar. She did her dissertation on sensory deprivation and active resistance. That is uh, an amazing story and I'm sure her work is incredible. I look forward to researching it myself. Um, it's too bad that I didn't get to meet her when I was at U of T. That's unfortunate. Yeah, she's at actually at York. Um, yeah, I hear it. But Shekufe um, uh, is extremely kind and generous. And she served as the executive director of Iranian People, People's Tribunal that was held in Hague to uh, hold the regime accountable to its crimes against humanity. Uh, which was a symbolic tribunal. Of course, the regime is in power, so there wouldn't be any real, you know, international law tribunal. But still, just like Russell, uh, Russell's tribunal, where Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Bertrand Russell uh, tried to hold the U.S. government accountable for their crimes against humanity in Vietnam, they also went ahead as a grassroots justice uh, organization and held this tribunal. Shekoufe served as the executive director. Uh, of that and has written on grassroots justice making. I highly encourage uh, your uh, listeners to um, read about her work as uh, justice from below, which is something that we really need to understand as opposed to justice from above, which is this very bourgeois concept of relying on states to make a difference. She basically shows us how we are the only ones who can actually make a difference. Well, it sounds like a remarkable scholar, and I do look forward to looking at their work. So next question, uh, your advice for younger academics or students, do you have anything to pass along? Uh, I would say be courageous. Mm. Go after truth. Do not be afraid of going after controversial topics. Truth is the light that in brightens our pathway. Always seek the truth and do not be afraid because fear is something that doesn't, uh, th that hinders our access to truth. Do not be afraid. Go for it. Truth will be waiting for you. Was, is this coming from kind of a personal experience where you discouraged from researching something or looking at something? Dr. Shenouda, you may be a therapist as well. Uh, <laughs> that, that, was, that was an incredible question. Yes. Uh, well, I lived under uh, theocracy, uh, like I said, for 20 years. I went to prison at the age of 14. They arrested me for not wearing a proper hijab. They held me in a cell for a whole day without access to water, bathroom, or food. I... My experience, I think, with um, a system that has no freedom of speech, no freedom of information, you're basically blocked from accessing information. You're blocked from knowing what people went through before you, who rose up for justice. For example, when I grew up in Iran, I did not know about what had happened in the 80s, how many people had been executed by the state, how many people had lost their minds under torture. 
we are never supposed to ask and know these things. When I come here, people discourage me from talking about those things because, of course, they say, oh, then that would justify a war against Iran or uh, that would just justify what George Bush claimed that he was doing, that he was on a feminist mission to rescue Afghan women. Well, he wasn't. But that doesn't mean that the fight against fundamentalism and theocracy and Islamic um, fascism in the region is not actually happening. There right. is a fight happening. There is a gender apartheid in Iran and in Saudi Arabia. There is a struggle for freedom for women. There is an anti-mandatory hijab struggle by women in Iran. These fights are real. It's interesting that in both concepts, I was discouraged from talking about it. But yes, you got me. It is personal experience. And I have decided to be fierce, like uh, women who struggled for democracy and justice in Iran, just like Shekoufeh herself. I have learned to perhaps pay the price for it as well with you know, with my sanity, but I guess we, we just uh, cannot uh, stand down. This is a real fight. Yeah, and I think the problem is that, like, uh, you know, there can be two truths, right? There can be the, the real issue of going to war with Iran and the fear that that brings and the harm that that will bring, but that also that the, the current state of, you know, the government in Iran might also be very violent and those two truths i think are sometimes people want things more simple and you're saying the simplicity isn't helpful um it's exactly. actually quite simple i think that's what i'm doing i'm complicating the issue and i'm yeah. saying uh there is a war in iran we have been at war with this state for the past 41 years war is nothing new for us iranians and mm. as a marxist i would say people make their own history even though they might not make it as they please um, given the circumstance from the past, but we make our own history. This regime has been at war with us for the for, for the past 41 years. Um, U.S. is an outsider, but the whole world is not an outsider. There is international solidarity. There was international solidarity when people suffered under South African apartheid. There is international solidarity with Palestinian people under BDS movement, for example. So why isn't there any solidarity with Iranian people? As if... Yeah. People cannot show any solidarity to people. Of course they can. And we have been at war. War is nothing new for, uh, for us. We just want the world to care about our cause because we are a hostage in the hands of this regime that just is engaged in competing uh, regional imperialism with U.S. and Russia and other powers, is engaged in proxy wars in Syria and in Iraq and just wants to expand itself. It's just another imperialist power. And I think the advice of being true, of being courageous, moving forward, thinking freely is really important for young people nowadays because there are lots of questions that we have, right, that we need exactly. kind of free thinkers to examine. Exactly. Yeah. For example, I questioned, like yesterday I posted something that created so much controversy on Facebook. I said, why can, why can we uh, talk about Zionism but not Shia fascism? Why can yeah. we talk about BDS but not uh, Iranian women's struggle uh, against mandatory hijab, which has been going on for the for past 41 years? 
Um, that is something that I wonder. I mean, how do we pick and choose the movements that we want to be in solidarity with? How can we transnationalize social movements? How can we understand that Islamophobia might be a problem in the West, but it's not a problem in the Middle East? In fact, Islamophilia is a problem there. So we cannot have this white guilt and apply our universal notion of what constitutes violence to other parts of the world and start undermining the real struggles that are happening in those places. Amazing, compelling stuff. Moving on to segment three. I call this outside the project, the research, the work, the art. I want to know who is the most famous person you've met and what was that like? Or who is the most memorable person um, that you've met? One of the people that I very, very respect, but I, I have only met online. Uh, his name is Iraj Mestagi, uh, I-R-A-J-M-E-S-D-A-G-H-I. Iraj Mestagi also served in prison for 10 years under Islamic Republic from 1981 to 1991 and has written 22 books about his experience and beyond and hundreds of articles uh, there is a book of his oh that was written. I know, right? He's he's just unbelievable. Uh, I, I tell him, yeah. I know, I know, um, because he's so passionate about you know his witnessing, and this is an example of active witnessing that I've been trying to talk about because he witnessed his comrades getting executed in a matter of days, as easy as that. This mm -hmm. mass atrocity that he witnessed, he took it up on him. So he decided to never let them go and always uh, keep their memory. And that remembering is, uh, is an active witnessing project that he's engaged with. Some of his, one of his books was translated into English recently, which um, is something that I'm really excited about. So my, uh, so the English speaking uh, world can read it. It's called Torture in the Name of Allah. Uh, translated and edited by Seper Manuchehri. It's S-E-P-E-H-R-M-A-N-O-C-H-E-H-R. Uh, it's called A Shocking Real Truth on the Pervasive Use of Torture by Islamic Regime in Iran. It is a very important book. book. It's very well researched. Uh, honestly, I think if uh, Iraj had done, did, done this as a dissertation, he would have received his doctorate long ago. Wow, that's both um, fam famous person and almost a book recommendation, so that's great. Um, <laughs> that's right. I want to know, um, do you carry around an obscure fact? I think I talk about politics. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's funny that this came up because, um, you know, the constitutional revolution in Iran, again, bring me back to this Iran thing. Constitutional revolution was kind of the first uh, attempt for democracy in the global south. Arguably, there was one group under Ottoman Empire who also rose for justice. So it could be at the same time. But the way that these guys were organized this is uh, around 1910 and 1911. So I'm coming from a culture that initiated the first rise for democracy in the global south. And arguably, 1979 revolution was the last revolution that we have experienced in the world in, in terms of like 
conventional like real revolution not a green movement or anything like that so uh, it's funny that we were unveiled mandatory at some point and then we were veiled mandatory at some point and we have had this women's movement going on for centuries so i think i am coming from a very political uh culture uh and maybe that's why i also i have a partner who is uh very political um so i think that's what i would like throw in like i would say what's up in iran man let's talk about <laughs> the supreme leader's hedge fund that's untaxable <laughs> you just you're like want to hear an obscure fact about iran i got 70 of them here you go <laughs> exactly exactly uh, what are you reading now? Are you reading any kind of non-academic work or, um, you know, anything that's not related to uh, your uh, developing of your book? Uh, actually, uh, something that I really love and I read constantly as a living text, uh, something that is always there uh, for me and it seems like I can never get over it, is a book uh, called uh, Ghosts of Revolution, Rekindled Memories of Political Imprisonment in Iran by Dr. My Dear Mentor, Shahla Talebi, S-H-A-H-L-A-T-A-L-E-B-I, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology and Religious Studies in Arizona State University. Uh, you wouldn't believe me, but she wrote this book as her undergraduate thesis, and it came out with Stanford University Press and is a masterpiece on conceptualizing uh, madness under torture in Iran in the 80s, where she was imprisoned for nine years herself, and she was, in fact, uh, cellmates with Shekupe Saki. Wow. Um, so they know each other quite well then. They know each other. They are friends. And uh, I love them both uh, very much. I have, uh, I have learned a lot from them and I continue to learn. I basically, my, um, they, these people are like my mentors uh, in, in academia and in life. And I really uh, value activism, as you, you know. And because these people, uh, all three people that I mentioned, Iraj, Shahla and Sheikh Kufi, all three of them have been in prison from eight to 10 years and just for being peaceful dissidents. Uh, and they have paid a high price with their body minds for justice, for just the idea of uh, no poverty, for just the idea of freedom of speech. So I highly respect activists who produce knowledge rather than the other way around. Yeah. Because I think materiality is nothing without consciousness. Consciousness is nothing without materiality. So I think the, the, the unity of those two is what I value the most in consciousness around social justice. What hobby do you enjoy more than anything else? And um, when did you start doing it? I am a big fan of Persian poetry. Okay. Uh, we are, yeah, we are in fact a nation of poem-loving nation, as we call ourselves. Uh, we can't even help ourselves, even in our daily talks, we cite poems. Oh, uh, wow. from, uh, yeah, from Rumi, Hafiz, uh, Sadi. Um, so I think reading poetry 
part of um, who I am since I was 14, 13. I, even earlier, I engaged uh, in it. Um, I also love dance. I dance. I was a dance instructor for 10 years and very typical uh, Middle Eastern uh, of me. I belly dance. Uh, <laughs> hey, it is, it is super hard to belly dance. That is like a skill unto its own. That is true. And it's very hot. I love it. Yeah. It is, <laughs> when you say, you say hot, you mean like it's very sexy. It is, yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. But I, I used to. I used to. Nowadays, sometimes I get into mystic poetry and Sufi poetry, which I love. And sometimes I paint a couple of darvishes on a canvas oh, who wow. are dancing and whirling like the um, darvishes that Rumi has told, told us about. Or I just giggle with my mom on the phone. <laughs> I think and, I think all of those are those sound like all worthwhile activities. So I wanna I wanna end by asking you the seminal question for this kind of podcast, which is, um, how do you think disability can save the world? Uh, I think uh, disability can definitely save the world because it it is a valuable teacher. Disability teaches us to resist, teaches us to love ourselves, teaches us to question the normative culture, to question the ways in which things are set up. It makes us question uh, the barriers, daily barriers that we have to live with and teaches us that those are reversible. Those are uh, changeable. Nothing is fixed. It, it teaches us that we don't need to fit the world. The world needs to fit us. That is a beautiful ending to uh, a wonderful conversation. Um, I hope you had a good time on the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed, uh, it was kind of resuscitating moment for me asking to your, asking your, uh, responding to your questions and I already feel a lot better. I mean, that oh. was a therapeutic experience for me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for sharing with us what you find. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks again to Sona for coming on the show and for a wonderful and intriguing conversation. If you'd like to get in touch with me about the podcast, please reach out at disabilitysavestheworld.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Fadi Shinuda. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Disability Saves the World.